Hello everyone, I'm Mark, the chief writer here at Maltopia, and I just wanted to remind you the sleep-wake cycle is but one of a series of interconnected horror podcasts within the wide and weird world of Maltopia. For Easter eggs, crossover events, and additional lore, please check out our other series, The Shepherd of Wolves, Red Mother, Grimland, and The Damnation Machine. And be sure to check out our free content on our Patreon page for additional lore and stories. For even more Maltopia content, consider becoming a patron. Starting for as little as $2 a month, benefits range from additional art, update videos, early episode access, our mini-podcast series, October's Children, both written and full audio pieces, such as The Lost Library, Tales of Maltopia, and The Weird Book. You can also gain access to our found footage show, The Weird Tape Series, and even our Patreon-exclusive, fully-produced audio series, Devil's Clay. So, with all that said, I will leave you to the darkness. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Rusty Quill presents. not a solid thing to me, at least not solid enough. Each and every one of its most pliable parts, those mysteries that defy even the most liberal post-noctum science, is like a rabbit hole, bottomless and filled with nonsense. And once I've tumbled down one, I'm the mad hatter off to another tea party. The most salient distinction, however, between me and the hatter is that I have some lingering, agonizing sense of what I've lost. I know the world is wrong, that I'm all wrong, and there's nothing I can do to claw it back. 
that I'm trapped in a nightmare I can't wake up from. And that's exactly where I found myself when Isaiah and I stopped running. It wasn't just unruly darkness, which I suspect was only one aspect of the stuff flooding from the serpent line, but several bizarre objective adjustments to the world. And like the changes it visited upon the Crickmire Mansion, everything was covered in a hellish crust. A darksome mold and rot that clung to the world. A material shadow of the wickedness infesting the land. And while we couldn't see beyond the ever-shrinking range of my glowing eyes, we could feel things out in the murk. It was like a completely alien brand of darkness. Its similarity to Earth's version merely coincidence. You could know, to some degree, what was in the pitch through a kind of prickling intuition, even have some sense of its dimensions. But the sensation was sporadic and likely unreliable, serving at the behest of the blackness itself, no doubt. As before, the stuff didn't just obscure matter and space, but time as well. This was as dreamlike as ever the world had been to me. Even the great darkness was gentler with its interruptions of cause and effect, sense and science. Granted, I was in deep sleep during the whole thing, so that might very well have made the Enterprise a bit more bearable. But this stuff was right there, all around me, and I was wide awake. I... I can feel the place. A tower, rising up into the sky. Christ, into, into space, maybe. Yeah, I feel it too. I'm supposing it's coming right out of the mine, the serpent's nest, where all the lines converge. Hmm. So much for having a hard time locating it. We could literally walk there with our eyes shut. Still, it'd be a hell of a lot easier if we could find a different way inside. But without some kind of map, well, it doesn't look good. Well, maybe all hope isn't quite lost. Team 27 ran into this same darkness when they stayed at Kilroy's. Seems to me, prior to the sacrifice that opened the line, any expressions that intense would likely lie near, if not right on top of the serpent line. If Kilroy was somehow spirited to his current location during the darkness, makes sense that it would have been a serpent line what made it all possible. That is, if I'm getting the gist of how all this serpent line stuff works. Now you're definitely catching on. Teleportation between serpent lines is a pretty well-documented phenomenon. I just wish I had been able to finish that class on crypto-naturalism. Would have come in handy. Whatever you got out of it is still paying some pretty good dividends, I'd say. Do you still think that thing, the Sweetmaker or whatever he is, could be back up from the Esoterium? You got the hell beat out of me on that one. He's pulled our fat out of the fire three times now. Even gave us the lowdown on what was going on in Nighthead. Whoever he is, he does seem to be on our side. For now, at least. I have a pretty good idea of the layout of the city from my earlier dream read. It's more of an intuitive sense built up from my exposure to the town's collective dream, but once we're inside the city limits, I should be able to navigate to Kilroy's pretty easily. Provided it isn't as warped and convoluted as the Crickmire Mansion. Even if it is, I should still have a lingering sense of where we're going. <laughs> I hope.
The path back to Marrows crawled between sullen hillocks resembling the burial mounds of gigantic dead things, more so than the natural outcroppings of stone and earth we initially passed through, cutting across some thickets to rejoin the path on the opposite side of a hill. We hoped to avoid the sacrificial pit, where dead cleaved bodies had apparently returned to some twisted approximation of life, and were sent shambling after us. Once on the downward slope that led directly into Marrows, we saw that the individual houses, even the trees, had all been swathed in billowing black funeral veils. The city was barely visible, its muted silhouette pressed softly against the superior darkness flowing behind it. But there was also a kind of illumination, a gray light falling from the few street lamps scattered about and reflecting blandly from the occasional windowpane. The sense of menace was nearly overwhelming, and my bottle of pills had run dry. I'm not seeing anyone, but uh, that doesn't mean much. When you sleep at the place, did you get any idea of an active population? I know the discovery materials put it at a little under a grand, but those numbers are old. Nothing precise, but I definitely guess well under a thousand. Likely half that. And that was before the sacrifices. That's still a shit ton more people than the two of us can manage. Especially if they're in even worse shape than that bunch at the Crickmire place. Yeah, their proximity to the Serpent Line would have allowed them to absorb a lot more of the blast, the Serpent Energy. If and when this thing passes, will the people go back to normal? I'm not sure, but it's doubtful. This isn't like what happened when Abel destroyed the Vault. The Serpent energies affected changes to them on a bioetheric level. Death is likely the only release, and even then their souls belong to the Dark now, to Nykrist. And if Nykrist bites it? No idea, but it couldn't hurt their chances of buying a better afterlife. Huh. Good to know. We moved to the back of the nearest house, its disrepair obvious even beneath the Dark Veil. Once we crossed into the formal area of the city, a strange sound emerged to greet us, one that had no place outside a nightmare. Above us, in the black sky, sounded footfalls, as if several people moved about in a creaky wooden attic that wasn't there. It was hard to move about without looking up occasionally, wondering if I might catch the gaze of something just standing there, atop the rickety, darkened air. Creeping around to the front of the house, the streets were bathed in that strange gray light, which dimmed randomly to deepest darkness. Within moments, the awful eel things glided into view, casually probing the streets and houses, the drab light having no effect on them. The weightless way they glided about the dark and the gray made me imagine that the entire city had been replaced to the sea bottom, home to eels and bloated corpses and sunken treasures of gold. I don't think I'd ever wanted a cigarette so bad in my life, primarily because I hadn't gone so long without one. My last pack had been abandoned shortly after I purchased it in Hallowick. Golturo chased us out of the hotel in Nighthead before I could pack them for my extended holiday. All I had to insulate me from the paranoia, the delusions, was my brother. I didn't know if it was a side effect of our powers or just the psychological impact of being reunited. 
but he helped me keep things together. I could tell I did the same for him. We couldn't take a chance walking into plain view, so we moved through the backyards, navigating by the faintest blue light my eyes could manage. At one point, we snuck behind a ramshackle garage, where a soft dusting of the gray light settled across our path. At that range, I got a good sense of the stuff. The alien darkness was something ancient, maybe timeless, composed of solidified sin. The gray was like a hybrid of our own native species of darkness and the alien variety, something that straddled both but was neither, though it was clear which side it favored. Skirting the edges of the dull radiance, I began to hear the crackle of static coming from inside the sloping garage. Then came words, barely discernible for the hissing noise. It's not darkness. It's a crack in the world. We moved closer to the source of the words. Deep in the way back of the garage, behind piles of old junk, sat an old television on a crumbling workbench. It was a small thing, rabbit ear antennas sticking up over top its cracked screen. Drawing closer, a face tried to push through the whirring static, its voice weak. My name is Galen Estercliff, and I've got a story for ye, if you've got a mind to listen. The television wasn't even plugged in, but that was hardly surprising given all that was going on. I hadn't even begun to process the stuff from back at the Crickmires. And now I was about to get an earful from the next family who'd likely gotten a lot more than they bargained for by coming to Marrow's. With the current abrogation of normal reality, getting the lowdown from a ghost wasn't the strangest thing that had happened today. We're all ears, Galen. Say what you gotta say. They killed me. My entire family to bring that which is pent below to the surface. But unlike me family, who they fed to the pit, their souls forever entwined with the world below, I took another path into death, and so my soul is intact for now. I should have never believed the old Crickmire would part with such a profitable mine for such a low price especially with nearly the entire town being part of the bargain. Yet, the ungodly low asking price was just too much for me. A man no less greedy than Abel himself, perhaps. Though, I would pay a much steeper cost than the relative pittance Abel asked of me. Almost immediately after me and mine arrived, I could tell the locals had no tolerance for newcomers, eyeballing us as they did, sneering out in the open. But that didn't matter none to me, though I did throw them a bone, so to speak, a peace offering. I renamed the town after the lake, which I figured might sweeten them to us a bit. Of course, it didn't, but I felt I'd done more than I was obliged to, if anything. 
I figured that in time, our mutual love for fission would melt the ice between us. Even if my current interests were more firmly rooted in the good Earth herself. Not long after we moved into the big lake house on Tweed Street, a big thing I had built before arriving, we noticed the strange gatherings. Large numbers of townspeople sneaking off to the hills outside of town, always after dark. My son followed a bunch of them one night. He said they all gathered round a big sinkhole, whispering things to one another as they knelt at the edges. But later on, after he followed them a second time, he swore the whispers were coming out of the pit and weren't the townspeople at all. I didn't find the tale too tall for believing neither, for my experiences inside the mine were no less strange. Voices coming from underground, feelings black and full of wickedness, darkness that seemed to have no aversion to the light. And the miners weren't no better, sly and scheming-like, always up to no good, it seemed to me. Especially that Paul Malloy. He was the one who finally come for me, in the end. <laughs> but I outsmarted him. Old Polly, as the townsfolk like to call him, seemed to be the one really given the orders. Whenever I'd call out the instructions for the day, the men would always look to him for a nod of the head, as if the final say-so came from him and him alone. When me family started to have the same dreams, monstrous footsteps climbing out from some deep, dark place, and me children started hearing whispers coming from the strange crack that formed in me brand new basement floor, I decided to enlist the help from the outside. Me being a church-going man, whenever me work loud, that is, I decided to call in some black cloth from the nearest city with the church. Gunther. The old priest arrived during a god-awful thunderstorm, which seemed fitting enough, and he couldn't have come at a better time either. The night before he arrived, the lights went out and couldn't be turned back on, and the crack in the cellar had grown to three times its original size. One look at the place, and the priest bade me fetch his case from the guesthouse, where me servant had taken his things upon his arrival from the docks. I never saw me family again, or the priest for that matter. When I got back, they were all gone. The door kicked in and a mess made of the place. Old Polly was there, though, standing in the shadows of the cellarway, around from his pistol put me on me back. He told me what he'd done to them all. Had them taken to the pit just outside of town and thrown in. And when the townsfolk were done with me kin, they'd be back for me. I knew I wasn't going anywhere. That I couldn't save me family. Me legs weren't moving, and me vision was fading. But I got a mean streak in me, you know. A bit of fire. I always went killed. I put all the rounds of that gun save one, in the place they do the most good. <laughs> Old Polly didn't know what hit him. I even managed to crawl over to him and spit in his face before he died. 
<laughs> choking on his own blood as he was. I ain't never forgotten the look on his face <laughs> as he lay dying. Indignation. <laughs> Warms me cockles, even now. When I heard the gang of locals coming for me to bear me off to the pit, I took me final act of defiance. I put that last bullet right through me own brain. Alright, wait a minute. That guy, um, Renard, he said that the Astroclips were here well into the 1970s. That you made the place into a tourist attraction before you guys unsuccessfully turned to the mines, and then pulled up stakes and took off. This place works never nothing but a well of darkness. After I finished off Malloy, and before Kilroy showed up, the city fell into the hands of the Lansmore family. They were the ones who tried to turn the place into a tourist attraction, to harvest unwary out-of-towners for sacrifices to the one below. Once they'd spilled enough blood, they were able to enact the next leg of the wretched ritual, to bring some measure of their master up from the dark. It turned out to be some kind of demonic child, pulled right from the guts of a gigantic eel. As far as I know, that spawn's been dwelling within the temple the townspeople dug out from the mines during the Great Darkness. Of course, all these stories ain't gonna help you none. But I wanted to at least tell mine, all the same. That we Estercliffs didn't go quietly into the night. That we mattered for something. But this next part, you might do well to listen. You see, me soul weren't never put into the dark, and so I'd been free to wander, both sides of the city, above and below. And here's what I can tell ye. That thing what caused all this, the eel spawn, has only one foot out of the pit. It needs the dark, the atmosphere of hell itself to fully ascend, to reclaim its full share otherworldly power. If ye can stem the flow of darkness, then the thing can't become whatever it's meant to become. Okay. Any idea how we go about that? Indeed I do. <laughs> Gold. The Sleep-Wake Cycle is a Maltopia production. Today's episode was written by Mark Anzalone and performed by Kelly Bear and Mark Anzalone. The episode was edited by Walker Kornfeld. Sound production and editing was performed by Stephen Anzalone. And the Sleep-Wake Cycle theme song was written and performed by Sean Zeller. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Maltopia. That's M-A-E-L-T-O-P-I-A. And if you'd like to know more about the world of the sleep-wake cycle and contribute to its nightmarish expansion, visit us at www.patreon.com forward slash Meltopia, where you can gain access to all sorts of art, mythology, stories, and more. 
For more information about the sleep-wake cycle and the larger world of Maltopia, head over to Maltopia.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 